Part four, chapter six of the life of Florence Nightingale, volume one. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume 1, by Edward Tyus Cook. Miss Nightingale at Home, 1858-1861. to 1861. Few women and not many men have lived a fuller and busier life than was Miss Nightingale's during the five years which followed her return from the Crimean War. They were years of public work, but of work done in quiet, and what is more remarkable, they were years to her of constant physical weakness. At the turn of the year 1857-8, she was thought like to die. There were many times during the year 1859 when she and her friends expected her death at any moment. Thank you, wrote George Eliot to Miss Hennell in February, for sending me that authentic word about Miss Nightingale. I wonder if she would rather rest from her blessed labors or live to go on working. Sometimes when I read of the death of some great sensitive human being, I have a triumph in the sense that they are at rest, and yet along with that deep sadness at the thought that the rare nature is gone forever into the darkness. In the same year, Miss Nightingale gave Mr. Clough full instructions for her funeral. To her friend Colonel Lefroy, she had written as if the end were very near. What a crown yours will be, he answered, March 20, when you rest from your labors and your works follow you. A year later, she wrote to Mr. Manning, February 25, Dear sir or dear friend, whichever I may call you, I am in the land of the living still, as you see, contrary to everybody's expectation, but so much weaker than when you were so kind as to come here that I do not sit up at all now. Nunc dimittis, she added, is the only prayer I can make now as far as regards myself. Yet during all the time she was full of energy and fire and lived laborious days in writing and in talking. If the reader will turn to the bibliography 1858 to 1861, he will see at a glance how numerous were her printed works and preceding chapters have enabled him to estimate the amount of toil and thought that lay behind them. Her unprinted memoranda are on a like scale and her correspondence was enormous. Then, too, hardly a day passed upon which she did not transact business personally with one or other or with several of her cabinet. Among persons whom Miss Nightingale declined on the ground of failing health to receive, and the number included old friends and colleagues as well as strangers, there were some who would not believe that she was as ill as she said. They thought that she was cloaking hardness of heart or perversity of temper. But they were wrong. Among occasional visitors again whom she did receive, there were those to whom the evidence of their senses, derived from her animated and vigorous conversation, seemed to negative the idea that she was a serious invalid. But they did not understand. Sir John Lawrence, for instance, was received in March 1861 to discuss Indian questions. He found her much better than he expected, so her cousin Hilary reported. 
and said so to Dr. Sutherland as he went downstairs. Dr. Sutherland replied, You cannot know, but when I go back I shall find her quite abattu, and shall not speak another word to her. And so it was. Dr. Sutherland found her trembling all over and had to administer medical aid. For any interview with a stranger and for many interviews with her familiar colleagues, she had to save up strength very carefully in advance, and the transaction of any critical business or the strain of any excitement in conversation left her prostrate and palpitating afterwards. The doctors now told her that her heart was seriously affected. Mr. Chadwick doubted this, her father, writing to his wife from London and describing an evening spent with Florence, said, 1861, Chadwick and Sutherland at dinner, the former persisting that Flo's voice alone is sufficient to show that her so-called heart complaint is doubtful. In truth, she still seems to work like a Hercules in spite of all weakness. She worked without pause, but there were times when for weeks she did not leave her sofa or her bed and for months did not go out of doors. It may be, as Mr. Chadwick thought, that the diagnosis of the physicians was wrong or at any rate that it exaggerated the seriousness of the case. As she lived to be ninety, the truth must be, I suppose, that none of her vital organs or functions were at this time diseased. The history of her case points, I am told, to dilatation of the heart and neurasthenia. The former of these states, though often distressing in its symptoms, yields, I understand, to drugs and rest, and for the atonic condition of the nervous system, which is called neurasthenia, and which is often the product of excessive stress upon the functions of the mind, complete rest is also often a remedy. If, upon her return to England, Miss Nightingale had taken a long period of rest, it is probable that she would have regained normal health of body. But, as we have seen, she allowed herself no rest at all. She taxed exhausted powers of body to the uttermost. Even now complete rest would probably have cured her, but as she could not or would not put work aside, she was only able to carry it on by careful husbandry of her strength. Part 2 This state of the case led to a way of life which during the years now under consideration seemed a matter of necessity and which in later and less strenuous years had become, perhaps, in some degree, a matter of habit. Miss Nightingale, during the busy years, 1856-61, to 61, lived the life of a laborious hermit, a life which may in some respects be likened to that of Queen Victoria in the years following the death of the Prince Consort. In her own secluded court she worked indefatigably, but she screened herself closely from the world. After the year 1858, Miss Nightingale abandoned Malvern, and for change of air went instead to one or other of the northern heights of London. For the rest of the time she lived in London itself, and sometimes, when she was living at Hampstead, she would drive daily to her London quarters for the transaction of business. 
whether in london or at hampstead or highgate she did most of her work reclining on a sofa she must have been touched when an upholsterer hearing of her illness volunteered march eighteen sixty to make a reclining couch to her order he offered it as some slight token of the esteem she is held in by the working classes for her kindness to our soldiers many of whom are related to my workmen who would gladly work in her behalf without pay the screen from the outside world was provided by the devotion of relations and a few intimate friends in official business connected with the war office and hospitals her most constant helper was dr sutherland when not engaged on official business elsewhere he was with her nearly every day and a large number of her drafts copies and memoranda of this date are in his handwriting captain galton also rendered some assistance of a like sort among her kinsfolk the most helpful to her was mr clough who besides being the secretary of the nightingale fund was devoted in many ways to her service a little note from him february sixteenth eighteen fifty nine one of many will show the kind of thing willy-nilly you must stay till saturday the railway carriage is ordered at euston station they do not admit that saturday is a later day for the express than any other let us hope they are right the arrangements are therefore made for saturday i think you must allow me to see them carried out myself i enclose a yellow and maladive looking letter apparently from whom shall we hang at pulo penang there was also a brown paper parcel with i think two blue books inside it from mr alexander which i left lying at the burlington the rooms will all be ready as before i send a daily news with harriet martineau's latest on the eternal laws farewell a h clough her uncle and aunt mr and mrs samuel smith also played helpful parts at this time in miss nightingale's life of her aunt my and herself miss nightingale wrote that they were as two lovers and the aunt played a lover's part both in affectionate solicitude and in keeping the rest of the world away mr smith who was an examiner of private bills had rooms conveniently situated in whitehall and placed his business-like habits entirely at his niece's service much of her correspondence in the case of outsiders was undertaken by him and he also acted as her banker and accountant he found some reward perhaps for the drudgery in the pungency of the dockets in which miss nightingale conveyed her instructions on the letter from a lady working at cluer who loved and honoured miss nightingale and looked forward to seeing her some day the docket is dear uncle sam please choke off this woman and tell her that i shall never be well enough to see her either here or hereafter to the secretary of a certain sanitary association i will give twenty-one shillings for mrs s's sake provided they don't send me any more of their stupid books and don't let this unbusiness-like woman write any more of these unbusiness-like letters 
To be unbusinesslike was, in Miss Nightingale's eyes, an unpardonable sin, whether in woman or in man. In a woman it was almost as bad as another which is touched upon in one of the dockets. Choke her off. My private belief is that she merely wants a chance of getting married. On a letter of a very rambling kind from a would-be nurse, Uncle Sam's attention is called to the curious thing that she does not seem to know whether it is a parent or a child that she has lost. To a reverend gentleman who had a secret cure, these miserable ecclesiastical quacks, could you give them a lesson? What would they think of me did I possess such a discovery and keep it secret? To the inventor of a patent bed quilt, this man's letter reminds me of the pills which, when taken by a gentleman with a wooden leg, made it grow again. To the British Army scripture readers, she will send a subscription, though with some misgiving. I am like Paul Farrell, who never would engage in anything, knowing that he was a murderer and might be found out any day. So I think... Her uncle had read her religious speculations and would have caught the allusion to her heterodox opinions. To a pious lady who sent a tract, please answer this fool, but don't give her my address. Miss Nightingale disliked tracts. She received great bundles of them for distribution at Scutari. I said I distributed them, she once confessed, whether to the fire or not, I did not say. Like all female celebrities, Miss Nightingale received many offers of marriage. A letter which she wrote in the papers in support of the volunteer movement produced several. One was from a poor engineer who was profoundly touched by her noble sentiments and feared that only in heaven would her holy work be truly appreciated, but meanwhile offered his hand and heart, which are free, only you are so much above me. It is gratifying to observe, Uncle Sam is told, that this is not the first fruits, but the one and fortieth of my volunteer letter, and that I could have as many husbands as Mohammed's mother. Alas, it is I who am the gray donkey. To a petitioner who sent copies of verses to accompany accounts of his evangelical principles and pecuniary embarrassments, this is the third time the man has written, I think it is time you put a stop to him and his poetry. Miss Nightingale detested gush almost as much as unbusinesslike habits. Indeed, if the two things need be distinguished. She kept everything she received, but in looking through the presentation copies of poems in her library, I was struck, and I fear that the donors would have been pained, by the fact that she seldom had the curiosity even to cut the leaves where her praises are sung. To a very long-winded appeal from a lady who claimed the thrilling honor of Miss Nightingale's sympathy, I believe all this, though I don't know the woman from Adam. Send her two pound for me, at the same time giving her a hint to look at Bleak House. But Mr. Smith, though not a member of Parliament, was an old parliamentary hand, and I have seen copies of some of the admirable letters in which he carried out more or less his niece's instructions. I feel confident that he did not wound this petitioner's feelings by allusion to Mrs. Jellyby 
arboreal boulaga nor was it supposed that he would miss nightingale seldom denied herself a joke but though she had a keen scent for palpable humbug and was instantly offended by it her heart was easily touched and i am not sure that all her pecuniary benefactions which were constant numerous and manifold would have passed the test of a strict charity organization committee often however she took great pains in following up cases and in relieving them in the best way she was particularly open to appeals from the widows or other relations of soldiers and sailors her intimate knowledge of hospitals and other charitable institutions and the favor of queen victoria in placing many beds at her disposal increased her means of helpfulness many of her petitioners especially if they were autograph hunters in disguise were disappointed no doubt at not receiving an answer from miss nightingale herself but pecuniarily they were sometimes the gainers on many of their letters i find this supplementary docket from kind-hearted uncle sam sent also something on my own account and sometimes he sent something when she had said send nothing and she got the credit for it dear uncle sam i am so glad to think that i am laying up such a store in heaven upon your two pounds sent without my permission to this woman the uncle's tongue was almost as sharp and witty i have been told as the niece's pen and he must have found her comments very congenial part three the places at which miss nightingale lay perdue during these years were west hill lodge highgate the house of the howitts may june eighteen fifty nine montague grove hampstead oak hill house frognall september eighteen fifty nine to january eighteen sixty and upper terrace lodge number three hampstead end of eighteen sixty at one time when mr clough was abroad in search of health his young children stayed with her aunt at hampstead and her letters show that she took pleasure in their pleasures on the heath a letter to mrs clough hampstead september one eighteen sixty contains as pretty a description of a young child as may anywhere be found it came in its flannel coat to see me no one had ever prepared me for its royalty it sat quite upright but would not say a word good or bad the cats jumped up upon it it put out its hand with a kind of gracious dignity and caressed them as if they were presenting addresses and they responded in a humble grateful way quite cowed by infant majesty then it put out its little bare cold feet for me to warm which when i did it smiled in about twenty minutes it waved its hand to go away still without speaking a word i think it is the most beautifully organized little piece of humanity i ever saw the scene of miss nightingale's london court was the burlington hotel in april eighteen sixty one colonel phipps wrote to sir harry verney it has been arranged that an apartment at kensington palace shall be put into proper repair with a view to its being offered by the queen to miss nightingale as a residence 
i need not tell you how grateful it will be to the queen's feelings even in this slight degree to be able to mark her respect for this most excellent lady of whom everybody in this country must be proud but the queen's offer was respectfully declined those were days when there were no motor-cars or underground railways and miss nightingale immersed in daily business with men of affairs felt that a residence so remote from official london as kensington palace would deprive her of many opportunities for useful work she remained accordingly at the burlington where she had a small suite of apartments in a house attached to the hotel it comprised on an upper floor a bedroom a dressing-room a room for her maid and a spare bedroom and on a lower floor a sitting-room the spare bedroom enabled her to send dine-and-sleep invitations to busy men who were working with her on such occasions she would invite other members of her cabinet to dinner or to breakfast but she seldom was able to sit down to table with them hired rooms in hotels or lodgings gave miss nightingale for many years of her life all that she wanted in such sort the smaller the home the greater the quiet she was entirely free from dependence upon or affection for things she simplified life by reducing her impedimenta to the smallest compass her father in an incautious moment once wrote of sending some things for her drawing-room at the burlington she replied indignantly that she had no drawing-room a thing which was the destruction of so many women's lives there are always flowers in her rooms wrote her cousin beatrice to mr nightingale but so many blue books that i should think she could not complain of their looking like drawing-rooms i saw her wrote her sister to madame mole just before we came here embley and found the table covered among her beautiful flowers sent her by all sorts of people with indian reports and plans of new hospitals she was always fond of flowers she believed too in their curative or at any rate consolatory effect upon the sick and had made some study of their several colours in this respect with flowers and fruit and game she was abundantly supplied by her friend lady ashburton among others and by her admirer lady burdett coutts she forwarded many of such gifts to friends nurses and hospitals she asked her mother to send greenery and flowers from the country for the london hospitals it gives such pleasure to people who never see anything but four walls she was particularly thoughtful of the bermondsey nuns who had served with her in the crimean war she was constantly solicitous about the reverend mother's health as were the sisters about hers i am always praying for you wrote one of them her cardinal sister gonzaga and your health is no credit to my piety her little household always included some cats of which she was very fond madame mole had given her a family of fine persians some of them yellow and striped almost like tigers and very wild in a letter to sir james paget she seems to have complained that st bartholomew's hospital did not quite reciprocate her admiration yet she had a cat named bart's as well as one named tom sir james would communicate this evidence of affection to his colleagues 
The fact was, he added, that Thomas is a very boastful fellow, and says sometimes that the lady thinks meanly of everyone but him. Miss Nightingale's fondness for cats was shared by her father, and many of her letters to him and of his to her pass from problems of metaphysics to the less riddling antics of kittens. End of Miss Nightingale at Home, 1858 to 1861.